Hello, members. Thank you for supporting my new endeavor, and welcome to the first bonus episode. I promise to give you my best in the selection of stories behind the stories of World War II. But as always, please feel free to write me and suggest topics you would like covered in more detail. You have that right as a member. And as always, if I can find the detailed information, I will deliver it to you. So again, thank you. This series of episodes will borrow heavily from William Manchester's book, The Arms of Krupp, K-R-U-P-P. Alas, it's not on Audible yet, but I have recommended it to their service staff. But because it's been around for a while, you can probably get it pretty cheap. But like most of his books, it's just under a thousand pages. So just sit back and let me do all the work for you as I tell you the amazing story of this armaments family that tied its fortunes to Germany. The story of the Krupp family is the story of Germany. That is, Germany on the national stage, its foreign policy, and its ability to wage war. The greatness and riches of the nation and Krupp family were combined. The family dynasty rose and fell with war and German aggression, but somehow it never fell as low as the nation it served at the end of the numerous wars. At the end of World War II, as Germany was conquered, occupied, and divided, the Krupp family went on with its billions of dollars, its vast holdings, and all of that ruled by the oldest male of the Krupp family, as tradition dictated. Throughout the decades before World War II, the Krupp dynasty, which had produced from its forges armor, shells, bayonets, field guns, battleship armor, and fleets of submarines, had supported the German nation in its many forms during the time of Napoleon, the Franco-Prussian War, World War I, and finally World War II. So, the story of the Krupp dynasty is a very long one, but just to capture interest, I'll start the story near the end to show you how significant the family was. In 1914, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, which helped set off the chain of events that led to World War I. And even though Europe was unraveling quickly afterwards, his many holdings still had to be dealt with by his executors. One such was a hunting villa near Werfen in Austria. Its hallways were filled with the trophies from his successful hunting forays into the local forest. But now it had to be sold. But who could afford it? This was a lodge for royalty, or someone with a royal's income. But the purchaser was royalty in all but name and blood. Gustav Krupp von Bohlen und Halbach of Essen, Germany, was looking for a place to take his family to occasionally get away from the smoky, sooty airfield town of Essen in western Germany. And he happened to be married to the richest woman in Germany, if not Europe, Bertha Krupp. Her unique financial position had been that way since 1902, when her father died leaving her everything, as there were no male heirs to inherit, and she was the oldest female. But even her marriage is a story that is wrapped in myth and legend, 
Berta inherited the vast fortune at the age of 16, and, as no woman could be allowed to rule a company, something certainly as vast as the Krupp, a husband had to be found for her, someone who could father children, but also run the company as well. So the Kaiser Wilhelm II himself got involved and chose her mate. That's when Gustav was selected to marry her. Previously, he was a diplomat in Wilhelm's court, and he was selected. So, on May 7, 1907, the two were married, and, as her father was dead, the Kaiser himself, along with hundreds of Prussian officers, gave her away. So, if you think about it, Gustav was like a prince consort. He will marry the queen, run the company, and help sire future kings. His job is to run the company or the concern, but in this case, it's the German word that I mean, K-O-N-Z-E-R-N, and I'll probably use that word to refer to the business from now on. Zooming out a bit, the Krupps have been called everything from super-Nazis to super-patriots. The truth, as always, is probably somewhere in between. But their story has to be looked at honestly. And, of course, one of the first questions that come up, considering World War II, was that, did the company willingly, even proactively, use slave foreign labor to build arms for the Nazi armies surging across Europe and North Africa? Or were they forced to by their Nazi masters? The best answer is to look at the facts. By 1945, Alfred, the son of Gustav and Berta, who was then running the concern, had 138 concentration camps filled with slave foreign labor, besides his normal German workers. He also had just under 70,000 foreign civilian workmen, along with 23,000 other prisoners of war, about 5,000 of those being Jewish. And the surviving records, and there were a lot of them, make it quite clear that the Krupp concern used its power and influence to go after and seek foreign laborers, men, women, and children. In one particular case, Alfred, when he was in charge, used the influence of the Krupp name to persuade Hitler, Himmler, and the German army to allow them to use slave labor in Poland to make automatic weapons. The German army did not want this because it was too close to the front, but Krupp wrote letter after letter to Hitler and got his way. But the Krupps did more than simply sell weapons to the German government before and after unification. Their prestige affected national legislation. During his career, when Bismarck was forced to cave in and reform social legislation, he used the example set by the Krupps. No matter who was in charge of the family at the time, the wife and or daughters would go out and visit the Krupp workers called Krumpenier, who were sick or ailing, and the care that they gave to those people would be his basis. By 1941, Gustav, the leading Krupp, was getting older, and senility was setting in. And quite frankly, he was never truly a Krupp in German eyes. It was time for his son to take over. Everyone acknowledged the service Gustav did for Germany and for Krupp, but now it was time for a real Krupp to take over. But he would be the last one to ever make arms for Germany. 
Bertha and Gustav's son was Alfred Felix Awen Krupp von Bolen und Humbach, and he was born August 13, 1907. It was his time. His brothers and sisters would have the same last name, except for the Krupp part. Only the oldest male would have Krupp in his name from this line. And Alfred's story is even more amazing than his father's. So he takes over by 1941, but he doesn't officially become the director of directors until March 31st, 1942. But if Gustav dies, then all of the holdings of Krupp will be divided amongst the children. And that's not the way Alfred wanted it. This was his birthright. And the young industrial prince wanted everything that was coming to him. So, on August 10th, 1942, he needs to see Hitler to get this made legal. He goes to Hitler's underground headquarters in East Prussia. Now, because the Crumps had been giving money to Hitler and to the SS even before Hitler came to power, meeting the Fuhrer is not going to be any problem. So Alfred goes there, and he describes the situation to Hitler's immediate secretary. They take it to Hitler, and Hitler is only too happy to give Alfred anything he wants. So the Lex Krupp was created. It simply read, The firm of Fried Krupp, a family enterprise for 132 years, deserves the highest recognition for its incomparable performances in boosting the military power of Germany. Therefore, it is my wish that the enterprise be preserved as a family property. So Hitler signs it, and Alfred is now the sole heir to everything that Krupp owns. Which is going to make everything complicated in 1945, when the U.S. Ninth Army comes to Essen and they find Alfred sitting at the desk. They didn't know Alfred from his father Gustav. They just thought they had the right man. So they throw Alfred in prison. He goes to Landsberg Fortress, the place Hitler was held after the Beerhall Putsch failed, and he wrote Mein Kampf. They eventually figure it out, find Gustav, but by that time he's so infirm, they leave him alone, and he dies a couple of years after the war. But things get tricky for the Allies very quickly. They have just arrested the prince of the first family of Germany. Quickly, there is talk of breaking him out, but Alfred who was born for this, who had expected this his whole life, who thought it was his birthright, never breaks character. He never smiles. He never appears afraid. He never cowers. He just sits back as if none of this is touching him and smokes his cigarettes. And when he finds out about the breakout plans, he simply says, no, 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 don't worry about it. Time will settle all. And it turns out he was right. Even though his final appeal was rejected on August 21st, 1948, when his lawyers wrote to General Lucius Clay, the military governor of West Germany's American zone, and they asked him to intervene on the decision. Clay wrote back, not only did he agree with the verdict, but he also agreed with sentencing. Alfred wasn't going anywhere. But that changed when the economic turnaround came to Germany in 1948. Some people call it an economic miracle. Not only that, but the Cold War was heating up as the American, British, French, and other countries faced the Soviets and their allies. And NATO figured out very quickly that they would need the Germans in their zones on their side if war broke out. After all, it would be ground zero for any war that came. So in short, the democracies needed Germany, which meant the Ruhr, which meant Essen. 
which meant Krupp, which of course meant Alfred. They would need their factories. They would need their ability to produce high-quality steel. Now, some of the Allies talked about nationalizing everything in Essen, but even the British labor government in charge at the time could not go along with that. Some in the United States talked about forced immigration, literally removing every single German from the Ruhr and bringing in other nationalities, those who suffered during the war, pay them, and help them rebuild their lives. But again, that was shot down. So finally, there was only one answer left, and that came during the seventh month of the Korean War. U.S. High Commissioner John J. McCloy restored Alfred's vast holdings to him and pardoned him at the same time. After all, expediency was the order of the day. So what made Essen so important that it affected history? Simply, it was the coal underneath everyone's feet there. In fact, the coal there is a small part of a very large belt that starts in Wales and goes down into Poland, or the other way around, if you wish. But the quality varies greatly from location to location in that great belt, and under the Ruhr, the deposit was very large and of very high quality. The people there were bringing up as much coal as the rest of the continent did together, and what they brought up is called coke or pure carbon. And when the coal is heated to burn off its gases, the coke left behind is the key ingredient to make iron into steel. And for all its importance and impact on history, it is only a tiny spot on the map. The inner Ruhr only contains 15 cities, and it only stretches for 200 square miles, but it affected the world. In under Essen, there are more than 150 miles of tunnels under the city. And as you can imagine, the conditions there are harsh, dark, very hot, and 122 degrees Fahrenheit in a lot of places, and very dangerous. Men die there every year. And the smoke that rises from the process of making steel goes up to 10,000 feet in the air and chokes and clouds everything. So during the 19th century, when the people in Essen were learning and improving upon the process of making iron into steel, the Krupps were the leading smokestack barons of the area. They replaced the feudal aristocrats, they smashed the unions, and they made the workers do their bidding. And even though they replaced the former aristocrats, they took on their ways. The men built castles, and they stayed inside their world, while their women visited the sick and donated to charities. And as amazing as it may seem, two and a half decades after World War II, the people there were largely unchanged. They kept to themselves, distrusted outsiders, and desired only to be among their own folk. V-O-L-K. It is truly a community. All the sons grew up, and they only wanted to do the job their fathers held. If he was a foreman, they wanted to be a foreman. If they worked in the tunnels, they wanted to work in the tunnels, in the factories, and so on. So, now that I've introduced you to the Krupps, and I've given you an idea of the influence they will have on Germany and world history, let's start at the beginning and see how this dubious middle-class family would reach heights unimaginable. Where did this family come from? The first Krupp we know about was named Arndt, who probably came from the Lower Rhine. And of course, we know very little about him, but we do know a few facts that actually tell us a lot. 
In January 1587, Art signed his name in the Essens Register of Merchants Guild. From that single fact, we have to assume that he came from some means, as economic or social climbing was practically non-existent at the time. And there's no reason to credit him with above intelligence or business acumen, but he was shrewd. And we can prove this by his taking advantage of Essen's main problem, besides wolves getting in the walled city and the robbers that were already there that came out at night. Their main problem, like a lot of other cities, was sanitation, or the lack thereof. Sewage was dumped out of the window at night, and people hoped that nature would do the rest. So, as you can imagine, disease was common and a part of daily life. But when the plague came, Art was able to profit from this. As entire families were being wiped out, people wanted to leave. So, owners of property would sell for what they could get to get out, or if they found out they were afflicted, they would sell everything they had to either make their last days as pleasurable as they could or to take care of their family. Art quickly became adept at waiting for the right moment to buy when the price was at its lowest. His thinking had to be, if I don't die, I'll make a lot of money, and if I do die, well, I don't have to worry about it. So he bought a lot of land just outside the walls of Essen, mostly gardens and pastures. And while doing this, his normal business of trading went on. He worked right outside of his front door or on the ground floor of his house. He dealt mostly in cattle, wine, and schnapps. In short, he was a typical medieval entrepreneur. But soon he had enough success to join the mercantile masters who formed their own oligarch. They took care of the streets, the city, the surrounding walls. In essence, they took care of themselves. But the most tangible form of their power came in the form of their selection of city officials. Unsurprisingly, family members were chosen. So, this was Essen, and probably a lot of other places just like it, in 1600. And for many reasons, it wouldn't change for the next 200 years. Life there was insular, repetitive, and stagnant, except for Krupp. But next comes the Thirty Years' War, from 1618 to 1648. Germany was the battleground, and they were invaded by Danes, Swedes, Spaniards, Frenchmen, and Bohemians. Families, indeed entire villages, were wiped out during this war. But somehow, the Krupps not only survived, but they were hardly touched by it. Again, not because of brilliance on their part, but by some twist of fate. So the Krupp family goes on, but Arndt does not. He dies in 1624. Art's surviving son, Anton, marries a young woman in 1612, whose father just happens to be one of 24 gunsmiths in the city. So Anton is the first Krupp to sell arms, about a thousand barrels a year. Of course, the quality that the Krupp name will become known with isn't there, and this will not even become his main business. He just took advantage of his wife's connections. It was a flash in the pan. No pun intended. The next Krupp will not sell arms until the time of Napoleon. So, midway through the 1600s, the Peace of Westphalia comes and brings stability back to Europe and Essen. France is now the dominant power, and the Germans were left holding a grudge and biding their time. And the Krupps would play an important role in satisfying that grudge. And as the last foreign troops leave Essen, the town clerk there 
resumes his duties. His name was Matthias Krupp. Matthias was Arndt's grandson, from another son who had died before Arndt did. This was the third generation of known Krupps, and now the family is of patrician status. They are landholders, conservatives, and establishment in the city. The family continues to grow, as does their fortunes. Matthias dies in 1673, but leaves three sons behind. They grew the family's holdings and took other political positions in the city. One became the clerk, one became the burgermeister, and the last one went into textiles and made even more money. But it's at this point the Krupp family starts to decline. Of the three sons, only Arnold, the burgermeister, fathered sons, two to be exact, but one never had another son, and the other lost more money than he made. But late in life, Arnold's brother, Friedrich Jadokus Krupp, had a son with a second wife. He was 45, and she, Helen, 19. Nice. They married in 1751. In German culture, Jadokus gets credit for siring a son. But time would show that Helen not only should get credit for saving the family line, she also single-handedly saved the family fortune. Their one child was Peter Friedrich Wilhelm Krupp. But due to his mother's iron will and strength of character, he would never be nothing more than her assistant. Jadokas only lasted six years into the marriage, but he did what he was supposed to by having a son. From now on, the widow Krupp ran the family interest, and she expanded their investments and holdings. Her son, Peter, grew up, got married, had a son, but then died at age 42. And in spectacular Teutonic tradition, the widow Krupp grieved and then began to tutor her grandson in the ways of business. And that business was changing because changes were coming to Essen. Slowly, but they were coming. Blast furnaces were being improved upon as the men stumbled upon improvements in the process of making iron and shaping it to meet their needs. Don't get me wrong, life was still agricultural. It was all about farming and land. But the tools that they were using were being made locally and were improving. The widow Krupp let very little go by her unnoticed. In fact, she had the time to sit back and see where life was going in Essen. She took the Krupp money and influence and obtained a mill just north of Essen and four coal mines. She then took over an iron forge as its owner was brilliant at his job. He used coal instead of wood in the heating process. And again, I'll go into this later. But he was lousy at business. He left the Ruhr in the middle of the night, and the widow Krupp took over the entire works. So again, it's Helen Krupp that has moved the family forward while the males of the line have failed. But then she makes a huge mistake. After she buys the iron forge, she puts her 19-year-old grandson in charge as manager. But there was just one problem. Out of all the generations of Krupps, those masters of industry... This Friedrich Krupp was easily the most incompetent. So this seems like a good place to stop the story. Helen has brought up single-handedly the family fortune and her grandson will single-handedly almost ruin everything that she has done. So we'll pick up with the family soon. I'm sorry the book is not available on Audible, 
but there are other William Manchester books that are, and they are all amazing. You should check them out. And if you want one, of course, you can get it free by going through my website and signing up for a free membership. So again, thank you all. And I will return soon with another part of the story of the family of Krupp.